Thanks for listening to the show. Join us online at playvolutionhq.com and learn how to support the show at explorationsearlylearning.com slash support. Welcome to Renegade Rules. Kick back, settle in, and let us fill your ear holes with early learning information, wisdom, and advice. And now, here's Heather and Jeff. Hey, here's our third and final episode of this interview. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Bye-bye. Yeah, in our house, my, my youngest one likes to, um, you know, uh, if you give him an inch, he'll take 20,000 miles. He, <laughs> he feels so much more comfortable when people give him limits and are strong about them. You can almost see him relax when he's, yeah. got, he's got a teacher who's a little bit on the firm and tough side, and um, he adores her because he knows that he knows what she expects, and he tries very hard to, to live up to it. And at home, he does the same thing. So he'll come home. And maybe um, in, in our house, the expectation is you take your shoes off and you put them on the mat. Mm-hmm. And so he will come in, he'll take his shoes off, and he'll put them in the middle of the, uh, you know, the hallway. <laughs> and then um, he'll look at me <laughs> to see if I'm going to um, make sure that he follows up the, the family expectation. And sometimes I might say, I might go out of the room and see if he'll, because he'll say, oh, I'm just going to do it in a minute. I'm just going to do it in a minute. <laughs> and then um, I'll come back and make a, an observation and say, I see your shoes are still in the hallway. I don't threaten him with anything. I just, I call him on it. <laughs> it's like saying, I don't like your tone. I see your shoes are still there. And so mm-hmm. he knows that it hasn't gone past me and that I still am holding him to that same expectation. And he will move them. But if mm-hmm. I if I um, if I let one little thing go, he likes to let the whole the whole world come down. I think some kids, um, and he's a more insecure child than my other one. I think kids who particularly are less secure have a, a need to feel safe is to have more security and a framework around them. Mhm, mhm. And there there are a few things too. I think that one one question I sometimes ask parents is. Do you believe you when you're setting that limit? I mean, like, do you believe that you're going to make sure that that happens? And <laughs> I, I'm thinking about an example of, you know, this mom, again, because, of course, I see most of them in my office. And so there's sort of a common issue of what kind of behavior is appropriate for the office. So can they lie down all over the couch? Can they, are they supposed to sit up? Are they, you know, and every family is a little different. But this particular mom was saying to her daughter, I mean, you know, can you sit up, please? And, of course, her daughter didn't because her daughter's up. You know, that's that's part of their dynamic. And she and the mom sort of rolls her eyes. And I asked the mom later, did you think she was going to sit up? She said, no, absolutely not. So she felt defeated even really before she said anything. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't really saying it to make sure it happened. She was saying it because she felt like she should, but she was already feeling resigned. And so I agree that if you're going to have a stance about something, even if it's something small, then you have to insist. You have to. You can't let up until it's, it happens, and um, and that's what she did. And the girl sat up. I mean, it, you know, they're pretty responsive um, to these things. So yeah. Right, and that starts very young. I find. I mean, even when you're on the playground and there's toddlers, and the the parent will say it's time to go now or it's time to whatever, and the child does the opposite or or um, 
the varying reactions by the adults. I mean, that's a pretty typical two-year-old reaction, not wanting to, say, leave the park and come home for a nap. But the parent reactions are, are, to the same statement is so varied. And I, I see a lot of um, parents setting themselves up for, okay, you can, um, you're really the boss and I'm not. Um, yeah. It's it funny. doesn't happen I, um, overnight once you get a teen. You know, <laughs> no. you just, just come into your family last week. Sometimes, um, you know, teens can be adopted into families. But um, if you've worked with this child for a while, uh, these, these patterns and these communication patterns, they're established early. Yeah, and you know what to expect. You know, the the let's the, the example you're describing is such a great one because um I do have a little piece about faulty modeling, which is, of course, we do model a lot of things, and our kids are intently aware of us. And so, um, you know, I think one of the things that you described, but then there's also something else. I mean, you described it. Yeah, of course, you know, they'll say, well, five more minutes, or in ten minutes, or when the clock says, well, you know. But there's another thing that I think can happen too, which is that. The, the parent says it's time to go, and then they proceed to talk again with their other parents, uh-huh. you know, yep. and they don't really go. And then they get really angry. <laughs> you know, I said it's time to go, when actually they were the ones not leaving, and so then they just proceeded to talk to their friends. And then they get mad that the child isn't responding quickly enough. Um, They're behaving and, like a three-year-old themselves. Can you believe right. it? <laughs> You know, it's yeah. like, don't say that if you're not going to. And I, I laugh about it because I'm sure we've all done it. I know I've done mm-hmm. it. Um, but, um, I, yeah, so it, it's just, you know, it is really true that part of what we can do as parents is to start with ourselves only because, not because we're at fault for everything, but more just we have a little more control over ourselves than we do with over them. So it's just sometimes, you know, it's just easier to kind of look at yourself. And that was that was one of the chapters of um of just really emphasizing for adoptive parents how powerful they really are in their their teen's life and even for teens who don't let on about that. But, you know, really most of the time that teens get really upset in, in my office is when they're talking about their parents, their adoptive parents. And so, um, you know, it's I, I don't think adoptive parents would know that. And because I've seen, I am, I was an adopted teen once, but also I've seen so many and I've seen the patterns that they they care a lot and they think a lot about their adoptive parents more than they want their parents to know. Right, that you really matter to them, um, even though you, they may not show that aspect to you, but what you think of them and um, you're an, an essential person in their lives and, and you do have a lot of power, but it's learning how to use that power um, with effective communication and limits in, you know, that needs some training. Um, I remember going to a... Um, an education session on, on adoption, and they were talking about, well, love isn't enough. And I think that's important, whatever your family makeup is, is that, um, of course, we're going to love our kids, but that's not enough to parent. You also need to learn some basic skills on setting limits and, and not discounting feelings and not trying to fix them and make them happy all the time and not rescuing them all the time. And if we have propensities to do this, we need to look at ourselves and see how we can change some of our own adult actions and then watch how that impacts the kids because, as you say, they are always watching. Yeah, and I think I think for adoptive parents, you know, it's, it's, it is, you know, because love, you know, as adults, we really value that, and we really perceive love as a pretty powerful experience. And, and um, But I think for adoptive parents, you know, 
there was an initial perception, especially a while ago, maybe not quite as much now, um, but that love, it, it was enough, but it was also curative, you know, that love could heal whatever they needed to heal um, when the child came into their family. And so that's, that's an illusion that really can be harmful. And also, you know, when the realization happens, which it usually does at some point, and it's usually pretty painful, um, there is um, some recovery about that, and there's some grieving that happens with that. And, you know, that's what adoptive parents will say, that, you know, I thought, I thought that we were going to be able to do this thing and be curative, and, and we really, we can't really fix them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jeff, do you have some thoughts and insights and questions over there. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Katie, how, how did you decide to work with teenagers? I mean, uh, That's so, you know what? I love, I, I love teenagers. I'm frightened of them in real life. When they're all, when they're all hanging out together at the mall or something. Yeah. It's like, wow. You know, they're, they're up to no good. But, um, but I, I do really like to work with them, and it's so interesting because I do feel like in a way, you know, they're at such a crossroads, and they, and they encompass everything. You know, mm -hmm. they're looking back. They're looking forward to the future. They're so raw. Yeah. Um, I also enjoy the challenge of connecting with them because they have so many feelings about authority, and they have so many feelings about needing help, and they have so many feelings about trying to separate from their parents. And so they are, in a way, so accessible and then also, in a way, completely closed off. So uh, I, I like that. a challenge. <laughs> I do like it. I respect them. Uh huh. What I, I respect everything they're going through. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's easy for me to joke and say kids today, but I mean, there 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 is a lot of energy there too. Um, I I, I think that's got to be kind of kind of enjoyable too when you can when you can help them focus it and 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 control it a little bit and 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 work through those issues that they're dealing with. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess I've also seen how powerful the teen years are with the, you know, once they get beyond the teen years. And I've seen it go a lot of different ways. You know, I've seen it be, I've seen people really maximize the teen years and, mm -hmm. and do the, the, the work that it takes to, um, you know, stay connected for the long haul and help the adopted teen feel prepared for adulthood, for young adulthood. And then I've also seen um, it not happen and how much harder it is. It's not impossible, but how much harder it is to do that work in young adulthood because they're not living at home, or if they are, they don't want to be. And the parents don't even have the access that they used to, and they didn't have a lot of access or information before, but now they really don't. Uh -huh. And they can't even, they don't have as much influence in even um, having the young adult get the help that he or she needs. So there's, I feel like there's so much potential in the teen years too, yeah. especially for adoptive families. So beyond dealing with all the, all the energy and sometimes friction around adoption or with the teens you work with, are there, are there other common themes you see that they're struggling with as far as, as education or society in general and that kind of stuff? Because I think a lot of our listeners that are working with younger kids um, they kind of lose track of those kids as they grow up, and but they also fret and worry about where where they're ending up because because we hear about kids uh, with the high pressure, high stakes testing and all this kind of stuff uh, burning out by fourth grade and 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 so should we be more or should we be worried about teenagers or teenagers okay what's what's going on with the what's going on with the teenagers today? Well, there, there's definitely I mean there and specifically adopted teens are a high risk. They're at higher risk uh -huh. population. I mean, what we know is that um, adopted teens are four times more likely to make a suicide attempt 
um, compared to non-adopted teens, mm-hmm. and that they're also a little more susceptible to certain mental health issues um, than non-adopted teens. And, and that's striking given that we know that teens struggle a lot anyway. Yeah. So if we're comparing teens and non-adopted teens, that's, that's a lot. But um, So I, I think that the conversation we're trying to have, especially around suicidality, um, is just kind of how large the issue of survival is in their life. You know, that I think that we as adults don't realize how much they think about it. How many teens have said to me, I could have died, or I'm just lucky I made it, or it could have gone another way. You know, how much survivor's guilt they have, how much they still, in a way, lead their life as a strategy to make sure that they don't get abandoned and a strategy to make sure they have a family, that they that it's so hard to settle in and kind of take it for granted. Um, and to kind of assume that they'll be okay. And so I, I think that that's a piece that's missing a lot uh-huh. because it's so surprising. It's surprising that after so many years that teens could still um, worry about that, but that's what they're talking about. Right. And I think that a, a lot of times um, uh, the parents, they're getting used to adopting um, their child more at the beginning. You know, they get the new child into the family, and that's a huge transition for the parents. But then over time, they get really used to having this human being as part of their family. And I think they don't, uh, we as adults don't realize how the thread of all these feelings, these deep feelings, um, continue not just in older childhood and um teenage years but into adulthood and all these other times it's not something that that goes away it may not be uppermost in their minds but it's something that's a thread throughout life that maybe people who haven't experienced adoption closely might not be able to understand or be aware of it it is really a thread and i um you know um you know for adoptees it, it often can feel like the end of something when they join an adoptive family even though they are grateful and appreciative and all that stuff um but that it feels like the end of something. And for adoptive parents, I think it can feel like the beginning of something. Um, and I think it can be hard for adoptive parents when it feels like the adoptees are still back at the end. Why can't they just let that go? You mm-hmm. know, why is, are they still grieving the end? Um, and um, the fact that adoptees and adoptive parents can be on different pages at any given time, I think, is painful for everyone, actually. Um, so, yeah. Can we um, turn to the topic nobody talks about, which... Um, which is race, and I think that, you know, in my book, It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, I have a whole section about um, white families don't talk about race because we assume that um, if we don't talk about it, everybody will end up treating each other equally, and yet most other families of other colors and, and backgrounds do talk about it, as mostly for survival reasons and for heritage and, and other reasons, but they talk about it. So in your book, you do not hesitate to talk about race, and um, a lot of adoptions, whether they are domestic or international, are um, not of the same race within within the new family. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it can be really confusing for adoptees because um, the whole, you know, there's sort of a mix of race and culture. So when someone asks, let's say, an Asian adoptee, since I happen to be an Asian adoptee, where are you from, which is a very common question that we get, um, <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a, it's actually a difficult question to answer, even if we wanted to answer it, because mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of where are you from, where were you born, what's your race, what's your culture. You know, all of those things are totally different. You know, and, and they really don't go together very well. And so, right. and when you answer yeah. Chicago, nobody really wants <laughs> that answer, right? They don't. No, and then Chicago. it becomes a little. 
Yeah, which is what people often do. They'll say Michigan, you know, um, and that and the person never lets up ever until they eventually say their country. And so you either have to have some sort of confrontation with them, which is sometimes not even that safe to do, you know, in, in certain circumstances, uh-huh. or you just have to tell them, and it can feel kind of coercive, actually. So the I, I met my parents adopted five. They they when I was in eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade, um, adopted a sibling group of four. Uh, at that at the time, this was the eighties. They were black. Um, they grew up to be two of them are African American and two of them are black. Um, uh, I, I mean, we we all choose the the language we want to use. Um, one of the most hilarious things was I'm in like ninth ninth or tenth grade, and 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 one of my my adopted brothers is getting bullied at at school, and and so he goes to get his big brother, and 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 this white kid shows up um, to to protect him, and. Uh, it was it was kind of a, a, a weird dynamic, and and it, it's not something I was expecting to have tossed into into the house when I was growing up. But there's a lot of struggle and a lot of good came from it, and it 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 was kind of a a hard thing to deal with for everybody. Yeah, it really it really is, and and I think it gets back to this issue of which is of course so charged, which is the issue of white privilege. And I think people perceive privilege in a lot of different ways, but the way I think of privilege is um, that you something you don't have to think about, you know, something that has never been brought to your attention mm-hmm. or necessary to think about. And so, you know, if someone is white, you know, race has not been on the radar for the most part. Oh, and and, and try being a white dude. I mean, I, I can't, I I can't. I mean, I can't complain about anything in the world um, because, and, and 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 nor should I because there's, I mean, I, I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know what right, I mean, I though. I mean, I yes. yeah yeah. Being the majority, being the majority, and being the minority are worlds apart, worlds apart, and um, and I'm the majority in a lot of different ways. So I, I don't pretend, and and in those ways, uh-huh. I feel like I'm always the last to know what's going on there. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, I'm always, you know, and I feel, you know, that I, I I feel that I feel that same feeling that I think, you know, sometimes adoptive parents feel when they realize, oh wow, this has been really challenging for years, and I never really knew that. Uh huh. Um, and um, so I I think I absolutely do not know the experience of many many minorities. You know, or many, many kind of groups, different kinds of groups who are outside of the mainstream. And so that, to me, that's, that's the issue of privilege, is that you have to make special effort to try to get into that. Yeah. And there's um, a lot of talk, too, about whether, um, I mean, views, cultural views on adoption in this country have changed so much over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot more open adoptions. There's a lot more understanding that um, uh, adults who they, they're still considered adopted children, <laughs> even though they may be 50 years old, but their um, you know access to medical records or all sorts of things. There's there's evolving ideas about how we as a culture um, deal with adoption on many levels. Um, but I would on the race issue. Um, where do you think? current cultural thought is as far as is it healthy more healthy or less healthy or does it matter 
to have children of one race or culture placed in the family of another. Oh yeah, that's that's a it's such it's such a controversial issue. I mean, you may know that um, uh, the National Association of Black Social Workers did take a, a view on that, um, uh, which is that they were against it um, to put you know black or African American kids in white families, and and um, so they did state that. I'm not sure how they feel whether that's evolved or or kind of changed or not, but mm-hmm. um, but it's a, it's a pretty charged issue. It absolutely is, and and um, yeah, I think it it's. There's always the issue of what what is best for the child, and uh, you know, I think in the beginning that wasn't really even thought about that much. You know, that it was just you know out of the Korean War, out of the China one, you know, one child policy, or mm-hmm. you know, there are just political things that happened that led to um, that led to adoption. But now we're really thinking a lot about it, and there are a lot of strong feelings about not even just not even just m- mixing races and families, but also just let's say, international adoption in general. Yeah. You know, whether that should even be happening at all. So it, it's it's a pretty charged thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And some countries do not allow the children of their country to be adopted out of their borders. They have policies that, that um, there is no international adoption for some countries. Right. And then some countries only adopt special needs kids. So then, so then, what message does that send? You know that that the the only kids that they'll give away are the ones who have some sort of issue. Um, so it's just it's a very, it's a very fraught thing. Um, well, I would like to encourage people who are are interested either in learning more about um, the unique challenges that uh, adoptive families face or could be facing in the future. Um, and if they're interested in this topic, to find out about your book. Can you tell us a little bit how to find your book and where people can buy it and get information about you? Well, the book is on um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and um, it's on the Jessica Kingsley Publishers website, who, and they're located in the U.K., um, and also in Philadelphia. But um, And then my website is www.adoptionstherapyma.com, so there's information about the book there. And um, yeah, it's around. So it's say say now. the title again. It's parenting in the eye of the storm: the adoptive parent's guide to navigating the teen years. There we go. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Katie. Um, lots of ideas and wisdom to share for all ages. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Katie, I could listen to you for hours. We might have to have you back on again. Um, it's, it's, it's been a joy, and, and, and now I'm thinking about my childhood and what a jerk I was, and, and uh, oh, oh, man. I, I might need to come and I might need to regress back to my teenage years and come and see you as... Um, right. Well, that yeah, that's good. Well, at least you're thinking about it. That's good. Yeah. Well, no, I prefer not to have emotions or think about anything. But uh, you know, I guess you got to do it once in a while. So we'll, we'll yeah, see. We'll see, if, see yeah. if I can work through it. Hey, this has been Renegade Rules. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks to Katie. Thanks to Heather. Thanks to all you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Music by Alexander Shoemaker. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.